Welcome everybody to our Thursday lunchtime patient centre medical home webinar series. I'm Dan Ewald and I'm here between clinics in Lennox Head and Ballina and we're very excited to bring to you today a guest who's come all the way from the United States just for us, or so we'll tell ourselves. Lawanda Olewala, I hope I've got that approximately right, who's a primary care physician with the fantastic title and how could you resist being the Chief Clinical Transformation Officer <laughs> and the CEO of Inspire Health Solutions and Associate Clinical Professor at the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. So this is all in San Francisco. And uh, Nwanda has um, a depth of experience in the implementation of patient-centered medical homes in the United States. So we'll be really broadly asking her to tell us about what have they learned over the years of uh, developing and implementing patient-centered medical homes. And then we'll try and drill down to some of the transferable, nitty-gritty, specific things that we can do in our little general practice teams that are going to make it work. And I suspect we'll come back to our same old thing of getting the hearts and minds in place to kick the culture into an improvement mode. But uh, I'm very pleased to welcome Lamando, and please uh, take us through your slides. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the the introduction. I apologize for the challenges with the with the audio here, but I hope everyone can hear me. Uh, as I mentioned, I've had a lot of a long uh, relationship with the patient center medical home here in the U.S. Uh, first, as a uh, family physician, um, that's my clinical um, area of specialty, and I uh, many years ago was charged with bringing. I was a chief medical officer of a network of primary care centers across the state of Connecticut, 12 of them, and um, was charged with being able to get them all to become patient-centered medical homes back in 2008 after the original standards came out. And so I was very, very um, excited to, to work on that and to go through the process of transforming these different environments to becoming uh, high-functioning patient-centered medical homes, but learned a lot in that process and have been doing a lot of work in primary care transformation ever since then. So my lens comes from doing PCMH-related work in a number of different settings, including that one, um, and having a lot of familiarity with the terms, the standards, and but more than the standards and the terms, what it really what it really means. So I hope if I if I leave you with anything um, today, I'll, I'll, uh, you'll know that this has been. I started interacting and, and working on PCMH in 2008, and this is not an easy process. And I think, I, I hope that that's, that you'll take that away. I think it's, it's been great and, and, and highly aspirational and people have really, really seen uh, benefits in terms of cost and quality and access, but there have been some challenges along the way. So what I'm going to share with you today is just, uh, you know, what have we learned? Um, what mistakes I think have we made since we started this? The uh, first joint principles for PCMH came out in 2007, and since then the standards um, people have have changed and evolved over time. But I think we're learning a lot from from what has gone well and what has not gone so well. So um, I, if you can, uh, if I if you can just change over to my next slide, okay. I'm going to uh, quickly try to just recap a little bit of the PCMH as we've defined it in the U.S. and share some of our the lessons that we've learned. Um, you can go on to the to the next slide, please. 
So this is, I just, I share this because I think it's important to just have a little bit of context about why something like the PCMH was actually even necessary. Um, we are predicting a shortage of 40,000 primary care physicians to take care of our growing adult population by 2020. Um, and so just to be on the same page, when I'm speaking of primary care in the U.S., I'm referring to family physicians like me who take care of people across the lifespan. So from birth to, um, to, to elderly. Um, I also uh, am referring to uh, internal medicine and internal medicine is uh, the care of adult patients in our settings and then um, to pediatrics. So we consider those three as, um, as the internal, the primary care specialties. Um, so those, that's where I'm, what I'm referring to. And in that um, environment, we were looking at for the people that are going to take care of our aging population of adults, actually having uh, a very big shortage at work. Expecting. There are a couple of things behind that. One is that people are living longer. They're having longer, healthier lives, which is a great thing. But at the same time, they're also um, um, living with, the longer people live, the more they have chronic diseases and, and live with chronic diseases. However, the supply has not really been able to address this. So we have um, a number of, of, of medical schools across the country. And the thought is that if we open up more medical schools, we could get more people to go into primary care. Or if we shorten the amount of time we spend um, training people in medical school, we could get more people to go into primary care. However, what has happened is that, uh, unfortunately, despite doing those kind of things, we've not really been able to make a big dent in, this, in the supply. So we continue to have this, this wide uh, gap between what, what our, our demand is and what our supply is. We can go on to the next slide. We can we can go on to the next slide if you've got it. So when we talk about the primary primary care in the United States, we think about the patient-centered medical home as potentially uh, being in the center of, of that, but that's also supported by a number of different other entities and um, and and places where people spend most of their time. So I think most of you would agree that uh, our patients that we take care of as GPs, or in my case, as an, as an FP, um, most of their life is not spent with us. Uh, they, they are in school, they are at work, they are at home, they are engaging in their respective faith-based environments. Um, they're doing a lot of other things. We've, we've grown um, from thinking of the medical home as kind of the be-all, end-all of, of being able to provide good health to recognizing that it's been really, really important for that primary care medical home, patients in medical home to be part of a larger medical neighborhood and to think through how can we actually provide the best care for our patients, knowing that most of their lives will not be inside this patient center medical home. So when they come to us, we absolutely want to make sure that we have everything right and do it well, but also we need to build linkages and relationships beyond the medical home to be able to provide optimal care and continue. So here is a look at the, the, the joint principles of um, the patient-centered medical home as articulated by a number of different bodies. We have three main organizations in the United States, so the NCQA, the National Committee on Quality Assurance, the Accreditation Association for Ambulatory Healthcare, or the AAAHC, and the Joint Commission. And all three of them either recognize or credit primary care practices for being patient-centered medical homes. However, I, I will focus mostly on the NCQA because they have the lion's share of accreditations across the country. About 80% of all patient-centered medical homes in the United States are recognized by the NCQA. But regardless of which body is doing the recognition of the accreditation, 
there are some very basic tenets that stay the same. So the, the, the concept of a personal physician and a, a care team that takes care of a patient, um, physicians kind of leading and working with a team, providing care for the whole person, uh, care integration, and, and being sure that you're coordinating care across that larger medical neighborhood, as we, as we talked about, but also being sure that you're able to track what happens to people, have someone that kind of owns that information um, and keeps that in one place so that if patients are going to the hospital, they're also going to a specialist provider, a cardiologist, a, an orthopedic surgeon. Somebody is responsible for making sure that the medications that are changed, the things that are happening are all consistent, documented, and the patients are safe. Another important um, element is being able to measure and improve the, your performance and being really open and transparent about quality improvement in the primary care uh, patients at a medical home. And finally, being able to enhance the way access and continuity um, occurs in the, in the settings. Um, being able to actually experience uh, really good patient-centered care means that patients have access to you when they need you. And in some cases, that's, that's uh, you know, 24-7 access, and sometimes that's electronic or telephonic access. So this is just another look at some of those core tenets of the patient-centered medical home um, um, requirements. Uh, we, can go, we can go on to the next slide. Okay, so just, just a look. Um, the NCQA has a set of standards. They've got six um, main standards with a number of different elements underneath them. And to be able to be recognized as a patient-centered medical home, you've got to demonstrate that you've been able to achieve uh, some co combination of all of these particular elements. And, and each one of those sub-elements is, is critical. So it's a, both a combination of you're showing that you've got policies and things that support that work, but also um, data and other uh, uh, back things to support it and prove that you're doing it. So, for example, the first uh, standard is enhancing access and continuity. And one of the substandards and the elements is that you've got to be able to provide 24-7 access to clinical advice. So if you say that when you submit your application that we have access to clinical advice at all times for our patients, uh, you've also got to be able to show that that's true. So maybe, you know, uh, proof that people have been calling um, at nights or in evening hours or weekends, and they've been able to get access to some kind of clinical support. So it's not just a matter of kind of showing the policies and stuff, but also that you've got to be able to, to show, um, demonstrate um, the evidence and the data that supports these things. We can go on. So I just wanted you to have an idea of what that looks like. So when you think about what does good primary care look like, so certainly the NCQA and the other standards are standards, and, and people, um, you know, understand those and, and, and try to submit to be able to achieve those recognitions. But when you, when you think about what does really good primary care look like, um, up until a few months ago, I was the director of what's called the Center for Excellence in Primary Care at University of California, San Francisco. And my colleagues there developed this, this framework for thinking about what is good primary care um, and these are what, call, what I call the 10 building blocks of high-performing primary care. And in these, it really helps provide a roadmap for practices that are looking for becoming PCMHs or just becoming really good care delivery settings, all the things that are necessarily important. So the four blocks at the bottom, the foundational blocks are engaged leadership, data-driven improve, improvement, um, impanelment, being able to have people assigned to a, a panel, a physician, uh, and, and a care team and also every patient knowing who their, their provider and their care team um, are. And then finally, team-based care and being able to work and function in teams um, to be able to get people uh, both more access to, to care, leverage the expertise of different members of the team, 
you have people really working together to make a good experience for, for patients. Um, so this is, um, we can go on to the next one. So this has become a really important model as we look at what is it supposed to look like. So when you think about what's really new about the patient-centered medical home standards, um, everything that I said to you, probably look at it and think, well, yeah, that makes sense. Um, sure, people should have access to care. Yes, of course, we should be tracking and knowing what's happening to people. Um, and it's it's really important that you that we focus on these things, but 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 doing these things is a lot harder in real life um, than than we necessarily imagine. So, for example, the things that are really new that jump out to to me as what was really the the change that we were asking people to make really came from team based care, uh, the, the the new kind of approach to access to care, and then the larger medical neighborhood and coordinating care in that medical neighborhood. We can go to the next slide. Those are the things that really have, have uh, challenged people. So when you think about uh, team-based care, team-based care is not uh, is not just saying, okay, we've got you and me and we sit together and we're in the same space, so we are a team. It's really about trying to figure out how do you identify who are the right members of the team, create a team that works together, can function well together, that shares responsibility for a panel of patients uh, and, and knows who those patients are, builds good relationships with each other, but also um, and really focus on, on knowing the patient. So we, um, primary care uh, practices that have been able to get really good um, care teams have been able to really build strong relationships both with the, with the people, identify who does what, build strong relationships with those people, and then build strong relationships with those patients and feel that the patients are part of that team. So this illustration is just example of a patient panel and that panel um, is taken care of by an, a provider-led team and those those teams have really strong relationships with the with the patients and as I said this is a lot easier to conceptualize than it is to do in practice we can go on to the next one the team-based care is a certainly important element the next one is those NCQA um, elements that I mentioned around access and continuity now this is a real change for a lot of practices I mean of course we want to be able to give people access during office hours um, and to be able to have access to you. But the, the new standard requirement about having access after hours, um, and that can be in a number of different ways, either electronically or through telephonically, um, is, is, is definitely newer. So what some people have done, and many practices have been able to achieve this by um, extending their hours in their regular day, having providers work in different shifts, um, and to be able to actually engage um, their patients when needed. And then also providing electronic access. And that access um, could be through electronic consultations, having people communicate directly with the primary care practice, um, through patient portals, um, being able to, if a patient needs a prescription refill, they don't necessarily have to come to the office, but they have access to a system that enables them to request the refill, and the refill can go to the pharmacy. So being able to do this um, is, is, is hugely important. It's one of those elements that is that you need to pass to be able to become recognized as a patient-centered medical home. And in the good patient-centered medical homes, you see a combination of things. 24-7 um, access either through uh, staggered provider schedules, nursing clinical support in the evenings, nurse triage during the day, as well as electronic access. So we can uh, go on to the next one. So when you think about um, the third thing that I said was new is the co care coordination. So currently, um, and, and the way things were in, in places that are not kind of adopting this patient-centered medical home or this medical neighborhood framework, there are all these connections that are made for patients. There are, um, the patient is just in the midst of this labyrinth of 
different kinds of uh, communication uh, challenges. And at each of these points, there is no real organization or structure around what they're doing. So they're, they're going to a specialist, they're going to a lab, they're going to an emergency department, talking to their insurance company, going to the pharmacy, and none of these things are, are connected. But in a patient-centered medical home, what really happens is that you've got uh, the patient really in the middle and the primary care um, setting or the patient-centered medical home coordinating the conversations between all of these different people for that patient and making sure that there's someone that's helping with the insurance conversations, that if they're seeing the behavioral health provider, that information is known at the patient-centered medical home. The information that's going to and from the pharmacy is consistent and coordinated by that patient-centered medical home. We'll go on to the next one. And a lot of this is because we are looking at the quadruple aim as really our North Star now. Um, initially, we had first been thinking about the, the triple aim back in 2008, which is a way to improve the cost of care, care for populations, and improve the experience of care that patients um, went through. But realized that as people were really moving towards this triple aim, there was a lot of challenge in being able to, to maintain um, high quality practice when you have providers and clinical staff and other care team members that were burning out and experienced high rates of burnout. So the fourth aim was added to really um, respect and reflect the need for important experience for the providers and the care teams that actually provide care for patients. And if you've got them satisfied and they're having a good experience, they're much more likely to achieve the other aims. We can go to the next slide. So we have moved um, moved on um, and the train is up so you can continue to go on. Um, there, people have, we've moved very, very far. We can go to the next slide. PCMH momentum is huge. Over 100 commercial not-for-profit not health plans in the United States are leading PCMH initiatives. Some of the largest U.S. employers are offering this as a benefit to their employees. And many of our state Medicaid um, um, programs um, in each of our 50 states are offering P PCMH level of care or supporting it or paying for it. We can go on to the next slide. Um, this is from a paper that I'd, I'd written a few years ago on uh, reclaiming primary care and bringing sexy back to primary care. And one of the things that I argued was that if we could really optimize the way we delivered care, we could actually make primary care something more people wanted to go into and practice and stay in. You can go on to the next slide. So it's in that context and in this environment that the PCMH um, has come. We need to be able to sustain that momentum, that incredible momentum. Um, there are a number of things that are necessary to do that, uh, really preparing the workforce and having people really learn how do you come out of medical school, nursing school, dental school um, um, as a manager? How do you really support people in, in interprofessional care? Um, how do we leverage information technology and make this model uh, financially sustainable? And how do you really, really develop the clinical and patient benefits that you can from them? I do want to let you know that there's um, there might be... Um, a quick uh, delay. There's a, an issue with the with the computer that we're using here. Um, so I, if it if it does cut off, I'm going to join back in. No but, okay. But what I'll say is that so we thought the PCMH was going to be when you, we heard it, it makes sense. It sounds so perfect. It's great. It's going to be. We're going to do this. But what we found that it was actually a lot harder to do in real practice than it was to see those standards in, in writing. So what I what I've kind of summarized is four things that we've realized along the way and in these past um, you know ten years that we've realized and things that I wish that I knew before.